we'll consider just one word in Colossians chapter 2, and that word is found at the end of verse 7. Again, we'll be considering one word in Colossians chapter 2, and that word is found at the end of verse 7, but I will read verse 4 to begin. It's the word of the Lord, congregation. I say this, that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Jesus, our Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you are instructed and overflowing with gratitude. May God have a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. From verses 4 through 8, St. Paul tells his Colossian hearers to do one thing, and that is, because you have received Jesus Christ, now remain in him. Because you received Jesus Christ, now remain in Jesus Christ. Be rooted, be established in your faith, being built up in Jesus Christ. That is to say, all of our walking saints of God is to be a walking that is in Jesus Christ. We are to have our energy, all of who we are in this Christian life, is to come from our Savior. The reason why he says this is because in verse 8, which we will get to soon, maybe next week, maybe in two weeks, which deals with a lot of current events, um, he says... That see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Before he gets there, he tells his Colossian hearers, remain in Christ. Stick to what you heard from me, what you heard from the ministers before me. And then he'll deal with the, um, the the elementary things of the world, their philosophy, how they want us to think. Before that congregation, though, St. Paul reminds these Colossian Christians of a great virtue that they are to have as they walk in Jesus Christ. You, Christian, as you are walking in Christ, how are you to walk? In what manner are you to walk? If you were to ask St. Paul that question, he would say one word, gratitude, gratitude. How do we live the Christian life? How do we live out the Christian life? Well, there's many virtues we can hold to or rather exercise. But here in our verse, specifically at the ending of verse seven, St. Paul says, do everything. That is to say, be established in your faith, be built up in Christ, walk in Christ, be instructed, overflowing with gratitude. Christian, are you a gracious person? Are you a thankful person? Does it show in your life? That today, congregation, we will consider the virtue of gratitude. Let's first answer quickly, and we've done this already. What is a virtue? If there's anything that we need to recover in this day and age, especially in the Christian context, it is virtues. What virtues do for us? 
how virtues operate in us and how do we exercise the virtua, virtues from out of us. Saints of God, what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to be a good person? A good person is one who performs good acts because he himself is a good person. Again, a good person is one who performs good acts because he is a good person. But we have to ask, what allows us to know that our acts are good? How do we know that what we are performing are good acts? That we're actually doing good to our neighbor? The congregation, the answer is virtues. Virtues. Virtues are not things that we can buy. We can't go to the store in aisle 10, there's a uh, can of virtues. We buy it and we open it and we can drink it and then we can exercise them. Virtues are not something like a book where we buy on Amazon. It comes in the mail, we place on the shelf, and then when it's time for us to use it, we pick it up and then we use it. But rather, virtues, they don't exist outside of us, but rather virtues live in us. Virtues live in us. The virtuous person, saints of God, is one who takes what lives inside of them and brings it out. Again, takes what lives inside of them and brings it out. That is to say, right now, as you're sitting, there are many virtues that you need to exercise and you need to bring out. One of them is patience. One of them is prudence. We, we, we bring out these virtues that are lodged in our souls, awaiting to be birthed, awaiting to come alive. The virtues then perfect the person. If you want to be a good person, exercise the virtues. Making not only who we are good, but our acts good. The virtuous person performs good actions because he himself is a good person. Virtues allow us to think what is right, but also not only know what is right, but live in light of knowing what is right. That is to say, exercise, do acts that are according to what we know is right. Virtue, as Thomas Aquinas says, is a good quality of the mind by which we live righteously, of which no one can make bad use, which God works in us and without us. And saints, isn't what we need most in the Christian life is to know that what we are doing is correct? I mean, isn't that what we need in the Christian life? That knowing what we are doing is correct, is the right thing to do? The two highest parts of who we are, that which separates us from the animals and the plants, is going to be our intellect and our will. That by which we know and that by which we can act, we can perform things. But we know, congregation, that sin has stained what's unique about us. Our minds do not reason the way they ought to. And we don't will the things that we ought to. We don't will the good, but rather we will the evil. In this life, especially as Christians, as those who have been given the Holy Spirit, what we need most congregation is to know how do we live righteously unto God? We can know doctrine. That's fine. We can know all the ins and outs, well, some of the ins and outs, of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the hypostatic union, as I say, Christ and his two natures. But the real question that many Christians ask is, how do I live right unto God? How do I do so? 
<clears throat> saints of God, we need our reason to be rightly ordered to what God commands, and we need our actions to be rightly ordered to what God commands. Because remember, saints, sin is not just in our actions. Sin is not just in the physical um, um, action of a man who is married lying with a woman, but rather sin is in the heart. Sin begins in the mind. So then what does God do? God is so good to us, is he not? God, in saving us, not only gives us a right standing before himself by giving us the righteousness of Christ, but also in this life, he makes us righteous. He makes us actually a right person. The virtues then, congregation, is what the Holy Spirit pours into our souls in order to make us like God. That is what God is doing to you right now, congregation. Is that he's making you like himself. To make you like God. You already have a large piece, loosely speaking, of God in you. You already have God indwelling in you. And what you're doing in this life is essentially is you are bringing out the one who lives in the very depths of your soul. That is to say, you are bringing out the Holy Trinity. You are you are trying to exercise uh, the very virtues that the Trinity impresses upon your soul. You say faith, hope, and love. Now, there are some virtues that can be acquired. As I say, there are some virtues that through practice you can obtain. Practice such as virtues, rather, such as prudence, such as temperance, such as justice. The unbeliever can obtain these virtues, but there are some virtues that you can obtain. There are some virtues that practice can't buy. And those virtues are the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Technically speaking, they're called the theological virtues. Let's just call them the godlike virtues. The godlike virtues, faith, hope, and love. Now, before we get into the bulk of what we want to talk about this afternoon, it's important to know, congregation, that anyone, anyone, even an unbeliever, even the most sinner of sinners, can be a virtuous person. Anyone. Again, the most sinful of sinners can be a virtuous person. As I already said, through practice, the unbeliever can acquire many virtues. Through practice, an unbeliever, a sinner, can acquire, can obtain the virtue of justice. For example, when an unbeliever, let's just say an atheist, when he acts justly toward another person, and if he continues to act justly toward that person, he then acquires the virtue of justice. He is now a virtuous, or rather, just person. However, these acts from an atheist or unbeliever are always done imperfectly. They're always done imperfectly because they are not ordered according to divine love. Because they're not ordered according to divine love. That is to say, the love of God doesn't form the unbeliever's acts. Therefore, their acts will never be pleasing in God's sight. So the unbeliever can acquire all the moral virtues they they want. But those moral virtues will only perfect them on the natural level. It will only make them good in this world, but it will never make them good before God. And the reason why is because love, that is to say the theological virtue of love, the Holy Spirit, is not forming what they do. 
as opposed to the Christian. As opposed to the Christian, though. We do everything out of love for God and love for neighbor. That is the lens by which we are to act toward others. Because of the love of God and the love of neighbor. Now, saints, how are we to, how are we to live the virtuous life? Which is the happy life? The virtuous life, saints of God, the morally good life, the way that God has prescribed you for you to live is the happy life. You know, there's a lot of times in which people think that, well, not a lot of times, there's present times, people think that morality and happiness don't go together. That morality and my feeling of happiness cannot coexist. That is not how the ancient philosophers thought when they considered morality. Saints of God, we aren't to think that morality is simply over here, which is me doing good. And then happiness is over here, which is the feeling that I have when I go to Disneyland or when I go to the beach. And those two things don't really go together. Saints of God, the word of God itself doesn't create such dichotomy. You remember what Psalm 1 says, Psalm 1, 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. That there is something about obeying God that attributes to my happiness. You know this well. When you do a good act, aren't you happy? Does it make you feel good? To be truly happy then, saints of God, is to live well by acting well. That is true happiness. Is by living well and acting well. I wish I could open that up for us all. But true happiness is found in living well by acting well. And saints of God, virtue is what enables us to live the good and happy life. Specifically, congregation, the virtue of gratitude. The virtue of gratitude. Gratitude, congregation, is a virtue that is rarely practiced in our day and age. Gratitude is a very... Virtue that's rarely practiced in our day and age. And the reason why is because everyone feels like they're so entitled to something. Like, people owe them something. Like, I am rightly due this thing. And in many ways, you are rightly due many things in the virtue of justice. You are due many things. But there is a level of, um, of a hyper-entitlement, especially us as Americans have. That the virtue of practice or, or gratitude is, is rarely practiced. It's a virtue congregation that is unappreciated with respect to its power. That is to say, practicing the virtue of gratitude can do a lot for your life. Can do a whole lot for your life. We'll get that, we'll get there toward the end. It's a virtue that we need to practice. And here in our text, St. Paul says, gratitude and thankfulness is to regulate our lives as we are walking in Christ, trying to be a Christian. As we walk in this life, congregation, practice the virtue of gratitude. Even now, practice the virtue of gratitude that God allows us to hear his word through the instrument of a speaker. Right now, practice the virtue of gratitude. That, Lord, I'm so thankful I am not like my unsafe family members and friends that are deaf and mute to the word of God being preached. That someone can tell me that Jesus loves me and I don't have to roll my, I won't roll my eyes. But I actually know that. I believe that. That's something that's true. 
We can even practice it right now, congregation. What is the virtue of gratitude then? It's common when one is asked what is gratitude, the virtue of gratitude, they may say that it's a feeling. Gratitude is a, is a feeling that you have. Or an, uh, an, an emotion of thankfulness that you have toward another. But saints, in the strict sense, that's not what gratitude is. Gratitude is not simply an affective or a psychological state that we are in, that we enter. Now, one can have emotions when performing acts of gratitude, but gratitude as such is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. Also, gratitude, strictly speaking, is not a response towards one's gift toward you. And we may think that sometimes when one acts charitable toward you, you may think that gratitude is me responding to their work of being charitable. Well, strictly speaking, that's not gratitude either. But rather, the virtue of gratitude is not responding to perceived gifts, but rather it's recognizing and responding to gifts that are given as signs of love and friendship. Again, gratitude is recognizing and responding to gifts that are given as signs of love and of friendship. Aquinas gives us three conditions that are required for us to observe gratitude. How do we gauge how much gratitude one is owed? Three things. The first is to recognize the intention behind the gift. Recognizing the, the intention behind the gift. This is going to get really gospel-centered in just a few moments. Number two, the second is to give thanks for the gift. And number three is to repay the gift in kind. We're going to skip the third one and just focus on number one and two. In gratitude, we must first recognize the intention behind the gift from another. By focusing on the intention of the gift, rather than the gift itself, that is to say, by focusing on the heart behind the gift, rather than the material thing itself, we can see whether the gift is truly out of love or friendship, or out of necessity. How much gratitude is the person owed? For example, let's say one gives you a gift. And it's not your birthday. It's not today. Father's Day. It's not Mother's Day. There is no earthly reason why that person ought to give you a gift. Other than out of sheer love and friendship. What would supersede the very gift itself? It could even be a car. What would supersede the gift? Knowing that that gift was given out of love. Knowing that that gift was given out of a pure heart. A heart of friendship. Thomas Aquinas says it more precisely. Every moral act depends on the will. Hence, a kindly action, insofar as it is praiseworthy and is deserving of gratitude, consists materially in the thing done, but formally and chiefly in the will. That is to say, everything that we do comes from the will. Now we have to ask ourselves though, what's the intention of the will? Is it I'm giving you this gift out of necessity? I have to do it? Or am I giving you this gift out of love? Out of love. St. Thomas Aquinas says, that's where we chiefly find the intention of a gift. Is, what is the will saying? What is the will saying? When one is giving me this gift. This is something we already know from God's word congregation. We already know this. 
Consider the satisfaction of Christ unto the Father. Ephesians 5.2, St. Paul says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Well, we already see intention there, right? He loved you. The intention of why the Son gave himself over to you was because of love. Then he says, An offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. As a fragrant aroma. That is to say, there's something about as vicious, as gruesome, as the cross of Christ was, that was a pleasing aroma to the Father. That is to say, when the Father looks down upon his son's cross work, bloody, beaten and all, he takes delight in it. He takes delight in it. What St. Paul is saying is, in love, Christ offers himself unto the Father. And the Father views the sacrifice of Christ as a fragrant aroma. Think of your best smelling cologne. Now we must note that it wasn't the sacrifice. It wasn't the fact that his son is on the cross, blood but bleeding out, that pleased the father. The father didn't look at his son and say, man, look how much blood. I'm so proud of him. No, 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 no. That, 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 that would turn God into a pagan God, <laughs> a bloodthirsty God. Then it wouldn't be true that that would be cosmic child abuse. No, no, that's not the reason why the father looks down upon his son, sacrificed as a fragrant aroma. But rather, the pleasure of the aroma comes in a sacrifice properly made. The, the intention behind the sacrifice. What is Jesus Christ saying in his heart to the father? That God, I love you so much that I will give myself on the behalf of people whose sins I hate so much. That's what Christ is saying. That's why we call Christ's sacrifice to the Father uh, uh, a sacrifice of worship. A sacrifice of love. The sacrifice that God finds as a pleasing aroma are those sacrifices by those who offer to God that which is properly due to him with a sincere heart. That's why we say, congregation, that God does not care formally and chiefly in the externals of worship. We can do all the right things. We can read what all the reforms say concerning the regular principle of worship. But if there is no heart in worship, then God doesn't want it. God doesn't want it. Everything we do is to be done with a sincere heart. We know this well, Psalm 51. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I will give it. You do not delight in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Who was most broken hearted in the history of mankind? Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross was the most heartbroken man in the history of the world. Why? Because he knew your sins better than you. How does he know your sins better than you? Because he knows of the goodness of God better than anyone else. And in light of the goodness of God, he sees sin for what it ought to be, what it truly is. It's evil. It's wicked. God delights in the intention and the heart posture of one, along with, you know, an outward demonstration of what's in the heart. And saints of God, when we consider what God has done for us, when we think about what God has done for us, what was God's intention in giving to us his only begotten son? What was the reason of the incarnation. There's much we can say. Some will say wrongly that God had to give his son. God had to give his son. In order for us to be saved. 
The problem with such statements, congregation, is it removes the freedom of God, but also it limits the power of God. Again, to say that God had to save us in this manner removes the freedom of God and limits the power of God. If God so chose, if he so willed, if he so decreed, God could have saved us in the same manner he created light by a word. If God so chose, he did not have to send his eternal begotten son. If God so chose, he could have saved us the way he created by a word. God could have saved us any way he pleased, any way he desired, any way he willed. But also, congregation, such statements make God bound to us. It makes God bound to his creation, that God owes us salvation. That he owes us something. Saints of God, God did not give his son because he messed up with Adam in the garden. God did not send his son because what happened in the garden didn't go how he planned. God was under no necessity to save us. And we are never to think that the intention behind the father sending his son was out of necessity to make the wrongs of Adam right. We are never to think that. Oh, but hear me, congregation. The reason or intention behind the father sending his son was not out of necessity, was not out of indebtedness to us, but simply out of love. Out of love. Out of pure, fortuitous love. The father sends his son. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Oh, how many reformed people want to misinterpret that. To say that God hated the world. No, God loved the world. And in loving the world, he does this. He gives his only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I love the words of the great church father, John Christosom. He says, he who is out end or beginning or existence, infinite greatness, loved those who are on the earth. He loved you. But notice how he describes you. Creatures laden with sins innumerable. Creatures from head to foot. Soul and all sinful. And the act by which, and I, when I read this, when I read this congregation, I could not stop weeping. He says, and the act which springs from the love is equally indicative of its vastness. He says, you want me to see, the father says, you want to see how much I love you. Check this out. He sends his son. He sends his son. And then he says, for God did not give a servant. He did not give an angel. He did not give an archangel. He gave his son. He gave his son. Saying, since God has sent his son from the infinite ocean of love that he is, simply put, how much gratitude is he owed? How much gratitude is he owed? How much thankfulness is he rightly due? Young people, hear me right now. If you are not saved, hear me right now. There is nothing that no one in this world, mommy or daddy, grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, best friend and all, will ever, can ever do for you what God has done for sinful humanity. There is nothing, absolutely nothing. We show the utmost gratitude when a person gives us out of love, do we not? Well, saints, think of the type of love that our God has when he gives to us various gifts. Oh, I love my mom when she gives me various gifts. 
But part of the reason why is because I'm her son. Now, if I wasn't her son, well, she does many things for you. But she probably won't give me as much things as she does. Her love is coerced. It's, it's, it, there's, a, there's, an intent, there's something behind her love that has been placed upon her. The saints of God, the love that comes from the Father is pure. Pure love, where the only reason why we say he loves us is because he loves. That's the reason why God loves you. Because he loves. And he is love. This love that comes from us, congregation, is pure. One of the great spiritual masters that we have is St. Paul. He knew of this love well. Did he not? He knew of, of the intention and the infinite love that God showed upon the cross of Jesus Christ to him. He knew of it well. So much so that he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, The life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What that means, congregation, is Paul understood the intention of the cross. So much so that when he, he even says, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That the cross of Christ had wrapped such a web around the soul of Paul that he could not untangle himself and he did not want to. It was out of love that his heavenly father, for his heavenly father. And it was out of love for sinners like Paul that Christ died for him. Saints of God, the cross and what Christ did for St. Paul was not an afterthought for him. It wasn't something that was on the back end of his life. But rather, St. Paul's life was lived at the foot of the cross. Paul's life was lived outside of the empty tomb. Paul, saints of God, understood that the life that he lived was a life of thankfulness for the one who poured out love before him and continue to pour out love on him. This is the first way we are to measure how much gratitude we owe to someone by recognizing their intention. And man, think of the intention of the father sending his son. And we haven't even got into the, the, what Jesus Christ and his intention. And the Holy Spirit and his intention. St. Thomas also says in gratitude, we are not only to recognize the intention, but also we are to give thanks for it. Give thanks for it. We'll keep the third one, that is to repay gift in kind um, for another time. The word of God frequently commands us to give thanks to God. Frequently reminds us to give thanks to God. Ephesians 5.4 and there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Philippians 4, 6. Oh, how we need to hear this. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thankfulness, let your requests be known to God. Colossians 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And lastly, 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then, I urge all entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings to be made on our behalf on all men. This is why, thanks of God, we have a time of giving thanks to God in our prayer services, our prayer times. Because that's what Paul commands. Rather, God commands. Why, though? Why does the Lord command us to give thanks to him? Is it because he needs someone to give thanks to him? You read the Psalms all the time. You hear that 
God is getting praise from all of creation. Is God needing us to give him thanks in order for him to be happy, to be satisfied with himself? Well, for one congregation, giving thanks to God is natural to man. Giving thanks to God is natural to man. Every effect naturally turns to its cause. Again, every effect turns naturally to its cause. For example, we give thanks to our parents, and I taught the little ones this. Parents, um, just, just know if they give thanks to you in a more abundant way, we talked about the virtue of gratitude. We owe a sense of, de- a sense of gratitude to our parents. Whether or not they were good parents or not, they brought you into existence. We are to give thanks to our teachers because they are the ones that teach us. But with respect to God, St. Dionysius says, God turns all things to himself because he is the cause of all. In other words, since God brings all things into existence, all things owe gratitude and thankfulness to God. All things owe gratitude and thankfulness to God. Psalm 66, 4, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. The congregation, there's another reason. There's another reason why the Lord commands us to give thanks to him. And the reason why is for our own happiness. That's why. You want to be a happy person? Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. When you are having a bad day, when you're having a bad attitude, when you are constantly thinking of all the bad and evil that is in your life, how life has just beat you down so much, when you are constantly thinking about all the evil in your life, one of the great remedy saints for that is gratitude. Gratitude. For gratitude, saints of God, helps us focus on the good. It allows us to see the good. The grateful person focuses on all the blessings that God has given to him. And in doing such, it allows them to live with their bad problems a little bit better. I can live with the evil. I can live with the bad a little bit better in light of the goodness that God has shown to me. Amen. Amen. St. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Oh, we don't want to hear that. It's, it's as an ouch type of verse, do we not? Is it not? But St. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. And this is not from St. Paul's mind, though. He says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. John Gill comments. He says an adversary, as Job did, when not in so comfortable and agreeable a frame of soul as to be wished for, since it might be worse and not black despair. That is to say, you think you're in a bad situation? It could be worse. It could be a lot worse. Even under the temptations of Satan, since they might be greater. Yes, Satan is tempting me right now. Well, it could be worse too. It could be far worse. And since the grace of God is sufficient to bear up under them and deliver them, uh, I won't go with the rest, but here's a story. Uh, Frederick Douglass, when he moved to the north, he was appalled by how people would talk about when When slaves would sing, they would sing because they were happy. They were singing because they were happy. And it it appalled Frederick Douglass, who was a slave himself, who who, 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 who said, enslaved people, 
did not sing because they were happy. Enslaved people sung because they were in sorrow. Enslaved people sung because they were heartbroken. And what that means, congregation, is the best time to sing. The best time to be thankful. The best time to remember the goodness and think of hope for the future is when you're in the midst of some suffering. When you're in the midst of some sorrow. It's not when you got all things together. Praise the Lord and sing to your lungs when you got all things together. But when you're at the bottom of the bottom, that is the best time to think of the goodness of God and what he has done for you. To sing of the goodness of God and what he has done for you. Saints of God, the question I want you to meditate on is simply this. How grateful are you to God? How grateful are you to God? Do you remember the story of the ten men who Christ healed congregation? Do you remember that story? Let me just remind you real quickly. While he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he'd been healed, turned back, glorified God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. He was a Samaritan. But then Jesus responded saying, were there not ten cleansed? Did I not heal ten people? But the nine, where are they? Was only one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Christ heals ten people. One person turns back around to give thanks. But the nine go about their way. Ask yourself, congregation, alive this story. Who do you identify yourself with? Who do you identify yourself with? The nine who were healed or ungrateful or the one who was healed and fell on his face at the feet of Jesus? Do you remember, congregation, the story of Simon, the Pharisee, and the woman who was so thankful for what Christ has done for her that she had to dry her tears with her hair at the feet of Jesus. Do you remember, do you remember, congregation, the parable that Jesus told Simon? He says a moneylender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. When they were unable to repay, he counseled the debts of both. So which one of them will love more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one who he counseled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. You have judged correctly. In essence, what Jesus is saying to Simon is simply this. What Jesus is telling Simon is what you, what me, what we all need to be reminded of today, congregation, is that the one who has been forgiven much loves much. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. But the one who thinks little of their sin, the one who thinks little of how far of a distance sin had drew them away from God, the one who thinks of how little of how close up to hell they actually were. It's the one who will have a little view of their Savior. 
You think little of your sin, you'll think little of your Savior. What I'm saying, congregation, is simply this. We need to act like we've been forgiven much. We need to act like we've been forgiven much. We need to walk like we've been forgiven much. We need to talk like we've been forgiven much. We need to love like we've been forgiven much. We need to have patience with others. Like we've been given much patience from our Heavenly Father. We need to come to church acting like we've been forgiven much. We need to be Christians who have something to be thankful for. Because we Christians are the only ones on the world that have something to be thankful for. There is no hope in Islam. There is no hope in all these other cults that claim to be in line with Christianity. There is no hope for atheism. There is no hope for being in the middle agnostics. There is no hope for critics skeptics. Only hope is found in Jesus Christ, in authentic Orthodox Christianity. Oh, we have much to be thankful for, do we not? We have much to smile about. We have much to be happy about. Now, in closing, how can we cultivate this virtue of thankfulness and gratitude? How do we do this? How do we bring out what's lodged in us? Simple. It's, it's simple, congregation. Think of the intention behind God saving us. Just meditate. It was love. Oh, what love it is. What, what type of love? What type of love was shown to us? Think of the gift that God saved us with, his son. And then with his son, giving us his Holy Spirit. If you're like me, think of the sermons that have been preached lately. One sermon, two sermons that I can think of. He's thinking about Pastor Antonio's recent sermons on hell. There's one that said, oh, if we can dangle over hell for about one second. And just see the reality of what hell is. How would we come out on the other side? Saints of God, if those sermons on hell have not heightened your view of thankfulness. If you're the sermon today, specifically that second point, knowing that Satan for sure is going to be defeated. And that you, with the Son, are going to tread over All of God's enemies, read the end of Malachi. Saints of God, we have much to be thankful for. That Satan will not be defeated. He is defeated and will finally soon be defeated. That saints of God, we, us, you, that we were on our way to hell. Do you know that? On the path to hell, on the road to hell. But God interrupted us. But God stopped us in our path. Oh, just think of that reality itself. That you are not going to hell. But you're going to heaven. And you think you enjoy God now. Wait to that dazzling light of what we call the blessed vision of God. Uncovers all of the scales in your eyes. And removes all of the things that are obscure and not clear. Saints of God, 
Practice this virtue. Practice the virtue of gratefulness. How we do so, we can do so even now. Thank the Lord for the Lord's Supper. A great reminder to us that he will not leave us nor forsake us, but he will come for us. Also, congregation, and I'll close with this. Be grateful for the brothers and sisters that you have in Christ. Be grateful for the ones who are sitting right next to you. There's many that dream, even church people, of having and being associated with a family. And you have that congregation here. You have real Christian brothers and sisters who really, from the depths of their soul, love you. Let's pray.